Next week, I will celebrate six years of having been a United Methodist pastor. I've preached four Christmas… Oh, that's not… That was not meant to elicit <laughs> applause. Um, it's funny that it did, though. <laughs> Way to stick it out, Scott. <laughs> I love y'all. I've preached four Christmas Eve sermons. I've preached five Easter sermons. This will be my tenth sermon addressing gun violence after a mass shooting. I didn't take that class in seminary. Orlando, Dallas, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Parkland, Pittsburgh. Santa Fe, Texas, Dayton, El Paso, and now Uvalde. Ten tragedies, ten sermons, and my friends, I'm tired. I'm tired of lighting candles that need never be lit. I'm tired of ringing bells because more lives have been silenced. I'm tired of coming up with new creative ways to say that violence is evil and our addiction to violent tools pushes the kingdom of God further away. I'm tired of making my anger and my grief palatable for a pulpit. I'm tired of being told by political leaders to pray in response to these tragedies, and I'm tired of being told that I'm inappropriately political when I tell them to lead. I'm tired of knowing that there will be an 11th sermon and there will be a 12th. I'm tired, and I know I'm not the only one. If you're with me today at any point, I'm going to need you to say amen. It's one of the reasons I've written down my words today. You'll notice I'm using a lectern and a manuscript rarely because I'm so tired, my friends, I'm afraid of what might come out of my mouth if I don't. In the aftermath of these traumatic events, I think I'm mostly tired of this broken three-word ritual that we've come to expect and endure, thoughts and prayers. Now, no matter how sincerely these words are spoken or written, and trust me, I'm a praying person. They ring as incredibly hollow when they seem to be the only lasting response that we can provide. More thinking, more praying, and little else. As a people of faith, when the language of inaction becomes clothed in the language of faith, when prayer is offered as a substitute for substantive change, we People of faith have a responsibility, I would say a mandate, to become crystal clear about what we mean when we talk about prayer. And it just so happens that the assigned lectionary text for this morning, this is a scripture that we selected and put in the spreadsheet weeks ago, committed to read and preach on this day. It's a scene of Jesus doing what? Praying. I'll be honest with you, at first, I didn't want to preach this text. In fact, I was pretty mad about it for a couple of days. Didn't want to touch it, didn't want to deal with it. But I kept reading. Scripture does something weird when you keep reading. 
And what I discovered is that when we take this scene seriously, how Jesus prays and what it leads him to next, this scripture offers us a vision of prayer that is necessary for us to claim, especially on Sundays like today. We find ourselves in the Gospel of John once again. This time, Jesus is gathered with his disciples, presumably having finished their last supper, and he's just concluded his final moments of teaching when he turns his attention upward to pray. John says this. You'll see it on your screens. When Jesus finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that the son can glorify you. You've given him, or you gave him authority over everyone so that he could give eternal life to everyone you gave him. This is eternal life, he says, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. We'll stop here for a second. Last week, we looked at a passage from a few chapters earlier in John's gospel, and we talked about how John testifies to eternal life, not as waiting for heaven in our afterlife or somewhere else, but instead as something to be experienced and engaged with here in this life today. Here he summarizes, John summarizes his theology of eternal life in this way, to know God and to know Christ. Of course, for John, knowing and doing go hand in hand. To know God is to live for God. To know Christ is to live like Christ. Mental exercise is simply not enough, he says. In fact, to underscore this idea, Jesus then says this, I have glorified you on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. I have glorified you on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. There's that word glory again. I've glorified you. Now, I grew up just like my daughter Andy, sitting in pews in the United Methodist Church. And one of our rituals was singing the doxology in worship every week. In fact, my mom got really tired of me because I always do this really fake opera voice. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Sing that week after week. My mom would pinch the back of my arm. The first song I remember trying to learn the harmonies to, and I never really did figure that one out, Amanda. Sorry, I'm more of a unison guy. <laughs> Glory is a word that we use a lot in worship, don't we? It sounds like a very good churchy word. And as I was growing up, I thought it was mostly about what we did when the pastor wore a robe and the congregation sang. But here John is telling us that glory and worship too is about more than robes or, or altars and rituals. The glory we give to God, it seems, comes not from incense or burnt offering, but from the efforts that we take to make heaven a little more real here on earth. The worship we offer is found in the everyday work that we do. In fact, Jesus turns his attention to the work that soon will rest in the hands of his disciples. He says, I have revealed your name, God. To the people you gave me from this world, they were yours, and you gave them to me. And then he begins to pray this blessing prayer. Watch over them, he says later. Keep them safe. He knows that they will be without him for the very first time. And there's this underlying anxiety that Jesus feels for them that I found incredibly relatable this week. Dr. Barbara Lundblad preaching professor at Union Seminary puts it this way, Jesus is praying like a mother who has adopted these children. 
The disciples do not yet know what Jesus does know, that this will be their final moment together. They don't realize that he's offering them a benediction as he prepares to send them out into a world that will both embrace their ministry and prove hostile. This week, I hear the nervousness in his breath, the worry in between the lines as he prepares to send his children out. Maybe I hear that because I've shared this prayer this week, as I know you have. I wasn't alone in my tears on Wednesday morning as I dropped off my daughter for school with a brave smile on my face. In those moments of emotional depth, it's important to know that you're not alone. I'm grateful we have each other in weeks like this week. And I'm grateful to have a Messiah that shares my worries and prays as I do. As his prayer continues, Jesus turns his attention to a surprising set of people. Do you know who he prays for next? Us. I'm not praying only for them, he says, but also for those who believe in me because of their word. From the earliest of Christians to the folks called AUMC, the people who weren't there but heard about it from someone who was. This next portion of prayer is meant to bless and guide all of us. Hear this. Here where prayer leaves Jesus, I pray they will be one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, God, I pray that they will also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory, there's that work again, that you gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me. Jesus' prayer is that we would be one. Though not just united in some kind of wishy-washy, let's hold hands and sing kumbaya and pretend like everything's okay kind of way. It's the kind of unity, the kind of oneness that we see in the Trinity where we recognize each other as inseparable. Prayer leads us there. Where Uvalde looks and feels like home, even if we couldn't place it on a map on Monday. When our leaders offer their thoughts and prayers, I wonder if prayer leads them to the same place that it leads Jesus, to oneness. A oneness that transcends political affiliation in the name of common good. A oneness that places violent tools on the sacrificial altar so that lives no longer need be sacrificed. A oneness that holds the children of Uvalde as our own children and the people of Buffalo as our own people. But I'm not certain such prayer has taken place. Because when we see each other through the prayerful hearts with the oneness of God, something glorious happens, church. Do you want to know what it is? We act. Hear now the words following Jesus' prayer. This is where prayer leads Jesus. After he said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples and crossed over to the other side of the Kidron Valley. He and his disciples entered a garden there. Judas, his betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. Judas brought a company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him, so he went out and asked, Who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. 
When he said, I am, they shrank back and fell to the ground. He asked again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. If you are looking for me, then let these people go. This was so that the word he had spoken might be fulfilled. I didn't lose anyone of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the guards from the Jewish leaders took Jesus into custody. The words of God for the people of God, let us say, thanks be to God. Jesus sees the world as God intends us to see it, and so he lives in the world as God intends us to live, with action born of compassionate conviction. Just as Jesus' prayer begins, he ends with a faith that leads him to action, a prayer that leads him to live as the change that God seeks for the world that God loves. There are no hollow words here, no empty promises. Jesus will make good on the prayer he has prayed, and his disciples will, will bear witness to what prayerful life looks like in the end. My friends, it is a good and faithful thing to offer prayers in response to tragedy, but it is a mockery of faith and a denial of the gospel to pretend that prayer does not lead us to something substantive, something sacrificial, something glorifying and good as a product of prayer. So please, let us pray, and then let us act like a praying people. Let us pray, and then let us pass the common-sense gun reform that an overwhelming majority of Americans desire. Let us pray, and then let us hold our leaders accountable to the very communities they've been elected to serve. Let us pray, and then let us foster environments where children and students are noticed and cared for and raised up in love. Let us pray, and then let us lay down our weapons as Jesus commands Peter. Let us pray, and then let us make it easier to receive mental health care than it is to get a gun. Let us pray, and then let us live prepared to bring God glory rather than broken rituals or empty words. The sanctuary was open this past Wednesday for prayer and for reflection. I sat in the back pew just back there, Jeff, where you're sitting, and I was praying. Nothing profound or poetic, mainly just anger forming phrases with too many four-letter words for a Sunday morning. At one point, even through my closed eyelids, I could see the brightness of the sunlight pouring onto my face. I I opened my eyes, squinting as vivid orange and yellow light from one of our stained glass windows filled this dimly lit space with warmth and glow. The glass over my left shoulder depicts Isaiah, a prophet of the Hebrew Bible, kneeling at a stump the root of Jesse, he calls it, from which he envisioned a single branch sprouting and growing up. Do you see it? It's a vision he had for his people who had languished in exile for many years, an exile brought about by their own sins, ignoring the needs of the poor and the widow and the orphan. 
They could have been a mighty oak, but now they're simply a stump, and there's not much future for tired old stumps. But it's in exile, a season of darkness and hopelessness. It's here that Isaiah sees hope. Just one branch, small and simple, but hope nonetheless. And that kind of hope for a hopeless people can change everything. Isaiah's hope was found in a child, a future for the people who would lead them to places they could not or would not or were unwilling to go. I found myself staring at the stained glass and noticing how it was here in a dimly lit sanctuary nearing sunset when the light of Isaiah's hope shone brightest. Somewhere caught between depression and anger and hopelessness, I was washed in the hope of a single branch from a tired old stump. I didn't have a clear vision of hope Wednesday night, but Isaiah guided me to Jesus, and this morning Jesus guides me to his own children and to ours as well. Like I said at the start of the message, my friends, I'm tired, but I am not done. I'm not done praying. And I've only just begun to live my life like a living prayer. Because when I look for hope, I find it in my children and in yours and ours. In just a moment, we're going to recognize this year's class of confirmation students. Five exceptional students who are already leading us, hear me, church, to places we otherwise cannot or would not or would be unwilling to go. Do you hear me? They are curious, and they are funny, and they are incredibly smart. And when I went to teach them, they busted my chops for the whole hour. It was fantastic. <laughs> they ask way too many questions, and they're all way too hard to answer. And they're beautiful, and they're brilliant, and they're passionate. And I know they live their lives with the eyes of oneness. My prayer for them is that they could live as the fearless leaders God has created each and every one of them to be. Lead us. And my prayer for us, the people in place called AUMC, people who took a covenant and will reaffirm that covenant with these students in just a moment, my prayer for us is that as we prepare to recognize them, we would recommit ourselves to the prayerful work that is tiring, yes, but also glorifying and only ours to do. We owe them that. As John shows us, to offer thoughts and prayers is to invite justice and mercy upon the earth through our own actions, anything less is empty words and empty rituals. When we hear the words, let us pray, my friends, may we prepare for the echo, let us act. When we hear the words, let us pray, may we prepare for the words, let us act, for the glory of God, for the single branch from a tired old stump, for the one who calls us to lay down our weapons and receive heaven on earth. May it ever be so. Let us pray. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, would we know the power that we invoke when we call your name upon the earth? 
Would we recognize the strength that comes from the humble position of prayer? Would we confess ourselves and our people before you the ways that we have failed to live into your justice and righteousness and mercy and love? God, if we were a praying people, imagine what you could do. If we were a praying people, imagine how much closer heaven could be to this earth. If we were a praying people, imagine how much open our hearts could be to your love. If we were a praying people, oh God, just imagine the oneness that we could experience. Could we be a praying people, God? Could we humble ourselves and invite your strength to become our own? and for your endurance to pick us up when we fall, and your persevering love to keep us going when we are just too tired. God, would we be a praying people who are inspired by your courageous, compassionate conviction that we would not simply accept the broken ways of our world. God, give us the mouths to speak truth to power. Give us the hands to build communities that our children and our children's children deserve. Give us hearts that feel connected to every end of the earth. Give us spirits that are broken when any one of us hurts. And God, give us the will to live into your love as a people who pray and then live like it. Help us to live in the love of your Son who teaches us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.